All right, so Colossians chapter 1. We, our text this morning will be verses 9 through 12. So verse 9, Paul is writing and he says, And so, from the day that we heard... Now I'm going to stop right there and tell you what it is that they heard. They had heard, if you recall, from the previous verses. I think we may have read it last week. But they had heard about the faith of the people at Coloss. They'd heard that they were... Uh, have, they had faith in Jesus Christ and that the gospel was bearing fruit there because of the hope that they have in Christ in heaven. And so now, verse 9, Paul says, since we heard of that, that you are flourishing in the gospel, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So last week, that's Paul's prayer for the church. Last week, we looked at this little church in this little town of Coloss. Does that sound familiar to you? It's not very much unlike our little church in our little town of, of Paris. Our faith in Christ is just like the little church at Coloss. Our love for the saints is just like the little church at Coloss. The basis of our love for others and our faith in Christ is the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven, just like the believers at Coloss. We are a small but faithful gathering, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge and wisdom of God, just like at Coloss. So I think there is a lot that we could glean, a lot that we could learn from the Apostle Paul as he writes in this letter uh, this little letter in the middle of the New Testament to this little church in this little town at Coloss to strengthen us and to encourage us as believers, as Paul wrote, to strengthen and encourage a not-so-dissimilar church in Coloss. One thing to note is that Paul is always pointing to Jesus. In fact, he's pointing to Jesus so much that the book of Hebrews... We don't know who the author of Hebrews was. A lot of people think it was Paul. It's debatable. We don't know. But the book of Hebrews is so much about Jesus is better. That's, I mean, if you had to put Hebrews into three words, that would be it. Jesus is better. It's so much about that that we think Paul may have written it. I mean, that's just how much Paul focuses and points to Christ. He's always pointing to how great and glorious God is. In fact, when Paul talks about his weaknesses, he says, I am weak, and when I am weak, guess what? Jesus is strong. Amen. And I am weak so that his strength may be perfected in me. I'm always pointing, he's always pointing to Christ. I know uh, I keep emphasizing this letter here is a the little letter to this little church in this little town, but I want to tell you there's nothing little about Paul's subject here. There's nothing little. Paul encourages us by pointing to our great big God. Amen. Little church, great big God. In Romans 8, Paul says that if God is for us, 
Come on. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for let that's the emphasis right there. Let's not, the emphasis is not on us. If God is for us, it's if God is for us, then who can be against us? In other words, it's not the size of the building, it's not the number of the people in the pews or, or the amount of money in the bank, it's not how many programs we have or how flashy our services are, it's not any of that, it's all about how big and glorious and great God is. We may be a little church and a little town family worship center, but our God is big, He is sovereign over all. And if that big sovereign God is for us, then who can stand against us? God is the center. God is the focus. And He is sovereign over all. It's not about our ability. It's about God. Who can challenge God and prevail? Who can stand before God and prevail? I'll answer your question. Nobody. Nobody. He is God all by Himself. So Paul's prayer, I'm sorry, that ought to excite you a little bit more than I think it has. He is God all by himself. Ain't nobody can challenge him. That means the accuser that comes before him and tries to accuse the brethren and say, well, you said, but they did. They They can't stand before him. The accuser can't challenge him. The Bible says, Paul said, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Why? Because God has elect God and you've been chosen in Christ. That's worth shouting about. Paul's prayer for this little church at Coloss is based on that understanding that God is sovereign over all. See, Paul has a what we call a big God theology. He believes in a big God. And church, if the apostle Paul has a big God theology, then so do we. Our God cannot fail. He is perfect. His law is perfect. His testimony is true. His precepts are right. His commandments are pure. We read that this morning. God is sovereign. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph. God is sovereign. Little church, we serve a big God. That's not a request, that's a command. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Praise Him, praise Him. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. He's worthy of our praise. Why? Because He's a big God. He's a sovereign God. Ain't nobody stand before my God. Cancer can't stand before my God. Sickness can't stand before my God. Pornography can't stand before my God. Adultery can't stand before my God. Gender ideology can't stand before my God. Sin cannot stand before my God. Philosophies can't stand before my God. Why is Paul able to pray the way that he prayed for them? Because Paul has a big God theology. Verse 9, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge 
of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's his prayer. I pray for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But to what end? What's the point? What's the purpose of having all this knowledge and wisdom? Is it so that we can be academics? So that we can fill our heads with knowledge and sit around all day debating and theorizing? No. Emphatically, no. There is an expected end. An expected good with all this knowledge and wisdom that Paul wants us to have. An expected outcome. There's a point to that prayer. So why does Paul ask God for this knowledge and wisdom and understanding? That's verse 10. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, Paul says, I pray for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, the scripture is full of language asking who is worthy. And Paul says, I want you to be worthy. I want you to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. A, a, a manner of living, that manner of walking or, or way of, of living is fully pleasing to God, he says. Or, or we could say that it is a way of living that fully seeks to please the Lord. Amen. What does it mean to walk in a manner that's, that's worthy of the Lord? It means that our manner, our ways, our life is such that we fully seek to please God. We seek to please God in all that we do. That's walking in a manner that's worthy of Him. Looking to the Lord to say, is, is this pleasing to you? I want to please you. Whatever I do, I want to make sure it is pleasing to, to God. Remember that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. So we want to do everything we do so that God receives glory. And God is passionate about His own glory, so we do things to please God. Later in this very letter in Colossians, down in chapter 3, verse 17, we read it last week. He says that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. So we bear his name whenever we do things. Whatever you do, do it in Jesus' name. Pleasing the Lord. Glorifying God. So our way of living, our manner of walking, it has to be, it needs to be, it is to be such that God's glory and His great name are front and center in all that we do. It is a life that fully seeks to please God. Amen. Now, I just I love the Apostle Paul. He is not one to just throw something out there and then leave it to us to try to figure it out. He likes to explain. Sometimes his explanations are very lengthy. He's a wordy man. So very quickly here, here's how this is going to proceed. <laughs> Paul gives us four pillars that support a life that is lived in a manner that is worthy of God or, or a life that fully seeks to please God. I'm going to look at each of those pillars briefly and then in the end we're going to get some encouragement and strength from Paul from 17 glorious truths about God that Paul gives us to encourage the church and to embrace the vision and the practical application of his prayer for them. So Paul's like, here's, here's my big prayer for you uh, to our big God for your little church. 
on the basis of our big God, you should join me in believing and praying this prayer, this big prayer. I know that sounds like a lot to cover, four pillars, 17 truths, but we're going to get through it in time, I promise. But just buckle up, we got a, a little bit of a ride ahead of us. So pillar number one, all right? comes from verse 10. Paul says that I'm, I pray this for you. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God, of the will of God, in all spiritual wisdom, in all understanding, so that you will walk in a manner that is uh, worthy of God, fully pleasing to Him. And then here are, here's what that looks like. Bearing fruit in every good work. Now, I'm getting a lot of this from punctuation. You know, periods and commas and semicolons, all that, that matters. So pay attention. Um, bearing good fruit in every good work. I just uh, want you to know that there is nothing that is idle about pleasing God. Amen. James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And Jesus tells us to let our light shine by doing good works so that others will see those good works and glorify God. And that's what Paul means here. Paul says, put your faith in Christ on display in your good works. These are fruit-bearing works. Do you see that in the language? This means that the point of the good works or the good deeds that we do is to make much of Jesus to each other. Make much of Jesus to each other and to make much of Jesus to the world outside. It's a little different in each context, though. Okay? You and I, as believers, we may understand instinctively what it is that drives and motivates us when we love each other. We love each other because Christ loves us. Amen. And that's, that's a language that we all speak, right? That's, that's language, that's code that we all know. Our displays of love for each other within the fellowship of believers uh, is, is often understood, and maybe it even goes without saying. Maybe we understand it, that we, we do our good deeds, and we do our good works for each other, we help each other, we encourage one another. Maybe it goes without saying that that is born out of our love for Christ. My love for you is born out of my love for Christ, and because we are all believers and we all have that same kind of ideology about God and who God is, and that if you are my disciple, you will love one another, that because we know that, we understand that, and we don't have to be so direct about it. It just kind of goes without saying. If you're sick and I call you, you're going to know I'm doing it because I, I love you and I love you because Jesus first loved me. So presumably we're all believers. I don't, I don't need to convince you of the lordship of Christ through the works that I do. So when we, when we exercise that, in, in the context of the fellowship of believers, it's not primarily evangelical, is it? Instead, we, we reassure each other. We, we evidence to one another through our good works the reality that Christ is Lord, that He is sovereign over all. I'm not trying to convince you of His Lordship. You're already convinced. It's different with those on the outside, though, those who are not believers, those who are not part of the fellowship. Amen. There, we must be much more intentional 
to make sure that the evangelical nature of our works is front and center. So, when you stop to help that person on the side of the road, we, we need to make sure that Christ is front and center. I'm not doing this because I'm a good person. And how do I know that? Because Paul says that there's nothing good in me. I'm doing this because Christ is all and in all. And that needs to be part of the conversation. We need to be more direct with those on the outside. So that we're making, so that with our good works, we are making an argument or we're making a proclamation to the world that Christ is Lord. This is why I'm not really big on, on outreach programs that don't sufficiently preach or produce, project the gospel. I, I, I don't think it's enough to say to the world, hey, come over here, guys, because we have cookies. That's not sufficient. Hey, come over here, guys. We like to have fun. We like to have good, clean fun. You can bring your kids and have good, clean fun and not worry about them uh, getting, you know, harmed or not worry about drugs or alcohol or shooting or anything like that. Come here and have fun. Hey, guys, come over here because we have cookies. It's not enough to do that. We should be saying with our words and our deeds, this is what life looks like. And life is Christ. In the same verse, Paul gives us pillar number two. He says, increasing in knowledge of God. So we are to be doers. That's pillar one. And we are to be learners. That's pillar two. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 is one of the most fundamental truths about the Scriptures. Paul told Timothy, he said, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, do you see the, the, the amalgamation here? Do you see the, the correlation here between good works and knowledge? There's a reason that these two pillars that Paul gives us in Colossians, these two pillars appear connected together grammatically. Do you see that in the text? There's no punctuation between bearing fruit of every good, good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's no punctuation there. These, these are two separate things to be sure, but they go so closely together. They're like two sides, two separate sides of a coin. They're distinct, but they are together. Second Timothy 3, I think, gives us a clue as to why Paul puts them grammatically together. Because what furnishes us, what equips us, as he says in 2 Timothy, what equips us for good works is the scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now that's important. It's important to the fruitfulness of our good works that we do them in the knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding of the will of God. We only learn that from the scriptures. We may have thoughts and impressions about the will of God, but that's only accurate if the scriptures say. We may have ideas about God, 
but our authority in those matters is the Word of God. And so Paul encourages us to seek God, to seek His will and His wisdom. I will also say this, putting these two together, bearing fruitful good works and increasing in your knowledge of God. The Bible tells us that the wisdom of the world is upside down. And so there are so many things about life and about parenting. My wife and I even had a conversation about this the other day, about parenting, about loving other people, about just about love in general, that the world will tell you, and you may think, well, this makes perfect sense, and it doesn't. It ain't biblical. It ain't Bible. It ain't right. It is not loving. Okay, so... Let's go with children, child raising. I'll use the same example that I use with my wife. So we, you want to create a space for your child to explore, to learn, to grow, right? You, so we, we build them a sandbox. Uh, we'll call it a virtual sandbox, right? So in this sandbox, they're allowed to explore and, and get ideas about who they are and, and, you know, push some boundaries here and there and discover the boundaries. But it's a sandbox. It's a safe place. You don't build a sandbox and put bombs in it. Okay, where am, I, where am I going with that? So, well, you know, in the culture today, I just, I want my child to come to understand who they are and, and you know, what they are, what the, who's authentically them. And so I'm going to let them explore these, these alternate gender ideology, ideological ideas, let them explore these things, and then they will come to a conclusion about who they are and what they are. And I'm saying, you're allowing a bomb in the sandbox. It is not loving to put dangers in the sandbox where your children play. What is loving is to set boundaries for them and to tell them, no, this is a lie, this is the truth, and do it in a loving way. So Paul says, I want you to bear fruitful good works and increase in the knowledge of God. The reason why those two are together is because we can do things that we think are good and they're really cancer. We don't get that kind of discernment without the knowledge of God. So those, those two pillars go together. Pillar number three. Everyone good on that? Oh, number three. Comes in verse 11. Paul says, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now this one, pillar number three, and pillar number four, the last one, I believe they are possibly the most difficult for us to live out. And I'll explain that in a bit, but I want to start at the end of this one. There's some debate among various translations about where the punctuation should go. And punctuation matters. It's important. It helps us understand what, what the meaning is and where ideas are divided. Is it supposed to go after the word joy, like we see here in the ESV and in the King James? Or does it go after the word, or does it go before, uh, after, uh, after the word patience? Yeah, uh, like, uh, let's see, the NASB has it that way, the NIV has it that way. Depending on where we put it, it, it does change the meaning a bit, but it's nuanced, so it's not hugely consequential. So if your Bible has it one way, and, and your neighbors has it another, it's, don't, they're not reading false Bible, that's okay. There is some debate over it. I believe that the ESV 
And the King James translations did it the way they did it because it more closely lines up with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. So if we move the punctuation and include with joy with verse 12, giving thanks, then it reads like this, with joy giving thanks, right? If we keep it with verse 11, it's patience or endurance and patience with joy. We also see uh, an allusion to this in, in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles were arrested. And the Bible tells us that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of the Lord. There, there's something about, about one who is able to rejoice in suffering, something that is truly astonishing about being able to do what James said, count it all joy when you meet trials and temptations. Count it all joy when, when we suffer. About what Jesus said, rejoice when you are persecuted and reviled. Who rejoices in that? Well, saints of God do. There's something miraculous about it. Anyone Anyone can endure without joy. Anyone can show patience without joy. And so I, I don't think that Paul is encouraging us to be strengthened with all power according to the God's glorious might so that we can just endure and have patience. So I'm making the argument for why the semicolon goes after joy, why joy goes with enduring and patience. I don't think Paul is just saying, hey, you guys need to be strengthened. I'm praying for you to be strengthened by the power of God. Strengthened in all power so that you can just grin and bear it. Does that, does that sound like the Apostle Paul at all? No. If you read anything, he is the Apostle of joy. Amen. The Apostle of grace. Amen. I think he's saying you need all power. The power that comes only from God to endure and have patience with joy. Amen. To endure with joy, to have patience with joy. The miracle, because anyone can grin and bear it, right? Anybody can grin. The guy that makes the donuts for Dunkin' Donuts grins and bears it. I want someone to bounce in. <laughs> I want to bounce in and be happy when they come to serve me. And that's who Christians are. We are joyful in service. And sometimes that means we must be joyful in enduring and joyful in patience. That's the miracle. That's the glory in that, the glory in that statement is in the joy. Right? The glory is in joyful enduring. The glory is in joyful patience. I remember Miss Mary and how extremely blessed I was and strengthened in my faith when she was at the end of her life and laying there in that hospice bed, cancer attacking her brain, and yet she praised God and she gave thanks to God for all the goodness in her life, for all the good things he's done for her. Amen. That was just joy was on her lips. Joyful endurance, joyful patience. That kind of thing takes some big assurance from a great big God. And it's the same with the last pillar, verse 12.
Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Thankfulness is distinctly Christian. It is a hallmark of the Christian life. We are people of gratitude. And that goes hand in hand with joy. Joyful people are thankful people. And thankful people are joyful people. To say it another way, you will never meet a, a truly thankful person who has no joy. And you will never meet a truly joyful person who has no gratitude. Gratitude and joy are like, again, they're like different sides of a coin. They are distinct, but they are so connected. And this is part of why there's such a debate around where to put that semicolon in verse 11. Is it joyful endurance or is it joyful thanksgiving? And the answer is yes. (laughs) It's both. But I, I don't think it is necessary to include the descriptive joyful with giving thanks because to me it seems that all genuine thanksgiving is joyful i mean i can't i can't think of a scenario where we would display true human gratitude not even perfect gratitude not even godly gratitude but true human gratitude that is joyless Maybe I'm limited in my imagination. Maybe you can come up with a scenario on your own, but I, I can't. I can't. It just doesn't make sense to me. Gratitude and joy are so connected. I don't know how you can have one without the other, truly. So this, this fourth pillar that Paul gives us to live life is to live a life that is uh, thankful to God, a life of thankfulness to God. And I said earlier that I thought that this one and the previous one were probably the most difficult for us. Because, I mean, when, when we're suffering, whether it's physical suffering or emotional suffering, sometimes it's hard to be joyful. A lot of times it's hard to be joyful. Who smiles when they stub their toe? That's not to belittle suffering. I'm just giving you a ridiculous example. When we're suffering, it, it's, it's hard on us. Now, I know from personal experience, I, I have to fight for my serious joy on an almost daily basis. I really do. On the same coin, when it seems like nothing is, is going right, and working in the tech profession as I do, that's almost every day, I have to fight for gratitude also. You ever felt like that? Like the whole world is crashing around you? Like everything is coming undone? Like, if it could go wrong, it is going wrong. Amen. We uh, went to Missouri this, this week for Thanksgiving, and we get up there, and as we pull into the parking lot, we find out that our back tire is flat. Now, I don't know how long I've driven on a flat tire. It wasn't that long, because it was still going flat. Thank the Lord for that. But our back, And here we are on a Wednesday no, Tuesday night, right? And I've got Wednesday. The next day is a holiday, and everyone's closed for the weekend. And the tires that are on my car, they don't, you just have those in stock. They have to be ordered. And I, I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> if it could happen, could go wrong, all the circumstances, it did go wrong, right? 
We, we got it taken care of. Don't, don't worry about that, obviously, because we're home. Um, but, you know, sometimes you just feel like the world is crashing around. If it can go wrong, it is going wrong, and, and you're barely able to keep your head above water. And I know I'm not the only person that experiences that. Amen. Amen. Am I? Amen. There we go. Thank you. I appreciate that. Y'all aren't as spiritual as you think you are, I guess. <laughs> so when that's going on, it, it can be hard to find reasons to be thankful, especially when the responsibilities of the world are on your shoulders and the situation is on your shoulders. I mean, like, you know, we're there, and I'm worried about us being able to get home because we don't have a tire, right? And we're going to get a tire. And I'm concerned about that. I'm worried about that because that's my responsibility. And, of course, my wife is able to say, don't worry about it. God's got this. He'll take care of us. Don't Just be thankful. We're here. We made it safe. And, yeah, you don't have to worry about getting us home. So I'm just what I'm saying. When, just reality speaking, when, when it's on your shoulders, sometimes you can have a hard time finding reasons to be grateful, to be thankful Everything around you is imploding or exploding, and all of it is screaming for your attention. The wind and the waves are crashing. When all the ground around you is sinking sand, what do we do? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. That's what Paul says here. He's, it may be that you have nothing else left. It may be that everything has collapsed around you and you're left with nothing but uncertainty. And coming into the economy that we're coming into in this next year, there may be a lot of uncertainty that some of us will face. Amen. Uncertainty in our jobs, uncertainty in our livelihoods. I mean, food uncertainty, who knows? Have you gone grocery shopping lately? <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, portend bad things to come. I'm, you know, I'm just saying that the situations... Circumstances could be such that you find yourself facing a lot of uncertainty and you're sitting there wondering, what do I have to be grateful for? Amen. Paul says that there's one thing you can always be sure of. There's one thing you can always rejoice over and that is this, that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now, I say this is a tough one, right? It's a tough one. Because we're not, we're not always eternally minded people. We're very here and now minded people. And we have hard time seeing past our circumstances. A lot of Christians seem to have real tough times coming to terms with this. With their assurance in Christ. And so they, they live in guilt, right? When, when Christ has freed us from guilt. They live in shame. When the Bible says that no one who calls on the name of the Lord will be put to shame. Amen. They live in regret. When Jesus has wiped the slate clean on the cross. And Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Give thanks to God who has qualified you to share in the inheritance with the saints. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. At the end of the day, when everything else has fallen, I have Christ. And that is worth being thankful for. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. I've got two minutes now. And I have 17 truths to cover with you. That's a big prayer that Paul has prayed for that little church in that little town. And those are some big pillars that we must have to prop up that life that is pleasing to God, a manner, the life that is uh, worthy of God. But after Paul's prayer for this little church in this little town, he launches into an epic list of glorious truths about our great big God as a practical way. So Paul's like, here's my big prayer for you. And now here's some practical advice. Here's some practical reasons why you should join me in this prayer, why you should believe and trust that this prayer is righteous and that God is able and willing to fulfill it. All right, are you ready? I'm going to burn through this because I've got a minute and a half. Here we go. You don't have to follow me. Just It's in your text, verses 13 through 20. We'll just boom through it. Verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Amen? Amen. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Verse 13, still, he has transferred us from the kingdom uh, to his, the kingdom of his son. Delivered out of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his son. So you know what? We're no longer citizens of this world. We are strangers and sojourners here. We are citizens of the eternal kingdom of the eternal Son of God. So church, what he's telling us there is we need to have eternity in mind. That that is why Job is able to say, though you slay me yet, will I still trust you? Because I know that there is a better thing waiting. All right, I told you I was going to hurry through these, didn't I? Number three, verse 14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's redeemed us. Christ the Redeemer, right there. Number four, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Oh, this is, this is beautiful here because Paul is talking to people who used to be idol worshipers, right? And what is one of God's commandments? He said, you shall have no graven images, right? No other gods before me, no graven image. Yet Christ is the image of God. He ain't no graven image, though. He's the living image. He's the flesh and blood, living, breathing, walking, talking image of God. And he lives and he sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us. He's the real deal, the image of the living God. Number five, he's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Christ was created. He's the uncreated son. He is the eternally begotten son. What it means is that he is specially honored, first and only son over all creation. There's a special place for him, and we have our hope in him who sits in a special place. Number six, by him, verse 16, by him all things were created. He's about to dive into creation here. He wants to appeal to the created order. He says, by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So not just the things you can touch but also the things you can feel. You feel oppression, he's over it. You feel uh, a government taxes, guess what, he's over it. You, you, you feel rulers and, and authorities, he's over it. He's over everything. All things were created by him. 
number 7, all things were created through him. Amen. The Bible says in 1 John, that, or in John chapter 1, that Jesus in the beginning, he, in the beginning is the word. In the beginning, what happened? God spoke. Let there be all things created through him. Verse, six to, uh, verse uh, number 8, verse 16. Still in 16, all things were created for him. So all of creation works for Jesus. Everything works for Jesus. Do you remember, Joshua, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good? Everything, all things work for Jesus. Paul says that we know that he is working together all things for our good to them that love him and call him Lord. All things work for the glory of God. Number nine, he is before all things. Number 10, in him, verse 17, number 10, in him all things hold together. The Bible says that the universe is upheld by the power of his word. Amen. Number 11, verse 18, he is the head of the body. That's the church. So this guy, <laughs> this God, <laughs> he's the one that we follow. He's the head of the church. Amen. Number 12, he is the beginning. He is uncreated before everything, before time and space and everything in it, God is. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Number 13, he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, that's astonishing because the dead don't reproduce. That means that he is the conqueror of death. Amen. He conquered death. Amen. He changed the definition and the nature of death for those who believe. Amen. Because death has no sting for those of us Amen. who believe. Amen. It is but a veil that we cross through into new life. Who gets to say that but those who put their faith in Christ? Amen. Number 14, in everything he is preeminent verse 18 verse 19 number 15 in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell God don't inhabit any idol God does not inhabit a graven image he's not on a crucifix he's not on a cross God is in Christ and we only meet him in Christ 16 verse 20 he reconciles all things to himself whether on earth or in heaven. And lastly, but I think most incredibly, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. Great, big, glorious God. I'm going to leave you with this thought. All of those things, all 17 of those things that we just went through, those things are truth. These are not merely opinions or ideas that Paul is, you know, conjuring about God. These are truths that are given to Paul by God in the Holy Spirit. They are just as real as the ground on which you're standing. Amen. We may be a little church in a little town. And there may be times when we look around and we feel small or insignificant or vulnerable. But if we walk worthy of him, in a manner worthy of him, verse 23, he says, if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, in verse 22, the previous thing says what he will do. He will present us to himself holy and blameless and above reproach. 
because I told you it's Paul's saying it's not it's not numbers. It's not programs. It's not flash. It ain't style. In fact, Paul removed himself from style. He said, I don't come with eloquent words and flashy speech. I'm going to remove all that from me. I just want you to see the plain gospel. If we hold to the plain gospel, God is big. He is glorious. And he is the only one worthy of our lives. All other ground is sinking sand. So little church in this little town, be thankful because you serve a great big God. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You are good to us. Um, Thank you that you are who you are, that you have revealed yourself in your word to us, Lord, that you have given us these glorious truths that we can hold on to. Father, I pray that you send us away from here uh, with this weighing on our hearts, Lord, not, not as a heavy weight, Lord, but that it, that it is undergirds us and that it lifts us up, Father, that it be ground, solid ground on which we can stand, that we serve you, grand, great, glorious. Let us order our lives in a way that is, man, uh, that is pleasing to you and worthy of you. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.